Welcome to the Wells Preachers podcast for the first Sunday after Epiphany Year C. Our participants today is Pastor Jonathan Borman of Peace in Aiken, South Carolina, Pastor Tim Borman of Sure Foundation in New York, and Professor Tom Cuck representing Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. I'm John Hine, coordinator of Wells Congregational Services. The theme for the season of Epiphany is Uncovered, which we're each week we see that God's ways are kind of beyond our understanding. And so truths about God cannot be discovered by us. They must be uncovered for us, revealed to us. The theme of this specific day, the first Sunday of Epiphany, baptism of our Lord, is anointing uncovered. What the eye sees differs from what God decrees. Uh, John, let me start with you. In the worship plan, the guys can kind of see the big arc of this series. Can you summarize what we're hoping God's people take home with them on this particular Sunday? I don't know if I can summarize it. I, I, I can be loquacious, but I, I want to say three quick things about it. One is, if we preach the baptism of our Lord on the baptism of our Lord, we have done our job. Sometimes um, I got my twin on this podcast with me too. Sometimes we gripe to each other about how the baptism of our Lord has sunk. And it, it used to be like, this was the greatest preaching in the church. It was must attend a church like Christmas, like Easter, like the greatest sermons ever preached by Martin Luther, by Ignatius of Antioch, you know, that kind of thing. So if we do justice to the baptism of our Lord. We've done a pretty good job. But, you know, to narrow it down, um, I, I think the collect helps us. The collect is, is beautiful for this Sunday, and I think it gathers it up. Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan, you proclaimed him, your beloved son, and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Keep us who are baptized into Christ, faithful in our calling, and I, you know, I, I might emphasize that just for a second, like just based, just based on this, this text that we're going to be looking at, faithful in our calling, this, empower, this baptismal empowerment for Christian living, I think is, is a helpful theme to pull out of that, that collect. So, you know, seeing life with Jesus empowered the way it actually is, we're going to see kind of Samuel bumbling around a little bit and um, how the Lord helps him through the anointing of David. Thanks, Tim. Uh, for you, in the worship plan, the sermon is based on the first reading, um, 1 Samuel 16, which John just referenced. Uh, so if the theme being anointing uncovered, can you share why you guys chose that reading to try and drive home that theme of the day? Oh, oh my. I, I mean, I can. I, I don't want to argue that this, this lesson is better than the gospel lesson. It's an amazing juxtaposition where you get John the Baptist and his baptism next to Jesus' baptism. And I would not blame anyone if they wanted to take the gospel lesson. And Titus, you know, Titus is a beautiful lesson too. If you really want to preach out and connect Jesus' baptism to our own baptism, Titus would be a great lesson. I can only say that um, this, this one draw, drew my attention here in First Samuel, I'll just give a few reasons. It's a narrative, and it's it's a beautiful, shocking um, narrative that takes so many different twists and turns. And so that really drew me to it. I love Hebrew narrative, and I love exploring that. Um, you get some programmatic scriptural statements in here, 
that Jesus even takes in his own teaching ministry, like in verse seven, where we have the Lord not looking at the things that people looking at. Jesus, Jesus takes that into his own teaching ministry, and he actually says that the things that people look at and are attracted to are, are evil, he says in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. So you, you get to talk a little bit about that. You also have in this lesson an amazing um, misidentification of the Messiah. Like Samuel actually becomes who, who is one of Israel's greatest prophets ever. You know, the prophet Jeremiah says that, that he's in the great pantheon, you know, with Moses. And yet he, he becomes one of the greatest false preachers to himself ever in, in saying that, that Eliab surely must be the Messiah. And then you have God reversing that and saying with incredible fireworks around it in verse 12, then this amazing description of the true Messiah then. And of course that connects up well with the baptism of our Lord. I think there's a lot there. So that's why I want to take it. Great. Tom, question for you. Um, you know, hopefully by now, any guys who have listened to the, are listening to this podcast, they've already done their text study. That's our encouragement that they do the text study before listening to the podcast, but you teach Old Testament at the seminary. So what, just in skimming through it, what do you see as the one or two biggest things that jump out at you in the Hebrew text? Yeah, this, uh, because it is a narrative, there aren't a ton of grammatical issues in this text, but there are a number of little nuanced things that are, that are pretty interesting. Um, we already focused attention on verse seven a little bit, and there's a textual critical issue that's there. Most of our translations actually go with what the Septuagint had. They think that the Masoretic text got shortened up by homola toloiton. Say that word three times fast, huh? And um, that they think that that it shortened up a little bit. And so most most translations will go with uh, uh, the, the Septuagint. I, I think that probably is a fair way to go. The book of Samuel in general has lots of textual critical issues. It's one of the more difficult books in the Old Testament as far as textual critical things go. So that's one to, to take note of. Um, there are a number of little nuanced things that come in here. Like for example, David is called the Hakatan, the little one. Um, we're not sure if that refers to David simply being the youngest son, which is possible, or if it also is a commentary on his size. Um, Eliab was looked at as being tall and uh, strong, whereas David perhaps is smaller in, in stature. And so by contrast, Saul was tall. They did look on his outward appearance, which did not give the Israelites any look into the heart of Saul whatsoever. And yet back in chapter 15, um, David or Samuel said to Saul, when God rejected you or when God rejected him, Samuel points out to Saul that uh, Saul had considered himself as small in his own eyes. It's the same Hebrew word, katan. So you have this little interplay between Saul who had thought he was small in his own eyes, who God made great, and then Saul turned his back on him. And now the kingship is going to go to who? The hakatan, the small one. And who would have thought that? Only God could come up with a plan like that. And only God could reveal 
a plan such as that, which is amazing. One of the cool things about this text is that there's an inclusio aspect to this text. The, the text begins with God coming to Samuel and telling him to take his, his horn of oil and go and anoint one of Jesse's sons. And then it ends at the very end with Samuel anointing David uh, with his horn of oil. And so that horn of oil thought, the anointing thought, kind of uh, wraps this whole text together. And the Old Testament anointing, of course, was a powerful thing. The Spirit of God came on David. It rushed on David in power, is the way the Hebrew uh, literally reads. Um, and so, of course, we, we hear a reminder uh, or perhaps a shadow, we would say, of baptism and its power and how the Holy Spirit came on Jesus with power at his baptism to empower him for his work of salvation. So a really cool connecting thought there uh, for the baptism of, of Christ. Excellent. Well, John, let's go back to you. Um, just give me some initial thoughts you might have about how you're going to handle this text or uh, things you want to highlight in this text. Well, so, John, there's, um, I just did a little bit of work and I, and first of all, this is the first time I've ever done something like this. And so I'm noodling with it. I don't have a sermon written. And so I feel very inadequate to say anything like this is, so I'm noodling with a lot of things and I'm not sure how it all work out in terms of a sermon. But I, I, I did enough work to know that, that, that there's three possible sermons that, that are attractive to me. And the third one is, um, is, is, is the most attractive one to me. But I want to start with two that um, are, are less attractive to me at this, this point. And um, the first sermon is the David side of this text. The David side of this text. So there's, there's David the runt, David the unnoticed. I mean, David's name in, in the narrative doesn't even get, get, he doesn't even get named. The poor guy doesn't even get a name, you know until the last verse in the narrative. So he's unnamed, he's, he's the eighth, he's not, he's not the seventh, you know, it's, it's like Jesse has all of his sons and then there's David. And, and it's like, Jesse doesn't even care about him. Like, I don't know how you guys read, exactly read that text, but he's like, where, where like Samuel has to prompt him. Like, yeah. he's, he's tending sheep. Like I, I read one scholar who said, he's like Cinderella here. Like he's just out tending sheep. He's, he, he doesn't seem to be honored. He's not invited. So there is the David side of this text. And I think you could get at that. I think there's a sermon there. And the way you get at it is you, when you identify with David then, I think you're leaning towards the Titus three side of the of the lectionary, and you you try to show people then this is you, you're not unnoticed by God, you're not um, disempowered, you you're not a piece of trash, and you know Titus has that in, in its in its context too. You're an heir of the kingdom, you know. You're justified. You have a place in God's world. And he's going to use you to, to, to do things. So it's the new life then of baptism on the baptism of our Lord. Um, and, and maybe I'll stop right there and, and let, you know, other, other people chime in. But I think there's potential there. Well, there, I, Jonathan, I, I kind of agree with you. I'm kind of going a different way with this text. But you, I, I agree with you. The Psalms go that way with this text. Uh, I forget which. I think it's Psalm in the 70s somewhere. But. They definitely reference, especially 
uh, the fact that he was out tending sheep, like as if that was a bad thing, like, oh, he was out tending sheep, but God raised him up. And, and so the psalmist, the psalmist pick up on that. So it's a legitimate way to take the sermon. I saw the good professor shaking his head. He's got something on that. <laughs> yeah, I, a, a couple of couple of thoughts, or, or one thought, real quickly. the The whole issue of of anointing is is kind of interesting when you read the word studies on it and look at what it seemed to have um, indicated in Old Testament times. There seems to be a real covenant obligation thing going on, and so here. God is anointing David. Um, later, David is going to get anointed by the kingdom of Judah. And then still later, he's going to get anointed by the northern ten tribes. When the, North, when the, the kingdom of Judah and the northern ten tribes anoint David, the thought would be that they are pledging their allegiance to David. They are binding themselves to David in covenant um, fealty, in covenant relationship, that they are going to be loyal to him. Think of how much greater it is that God's anointing David, that God is binding himself to David and saying, I am going to be faithful to you. And since that thought is the inclusio thought, with this text, I think that would be one that would, I, I totally agree with what you said, John and, and uh, Tim, and both are great thoughts. Um, if, if I were going at it, I probably would go after it first and foremost with that thought of God has bound himself to be faithful to you. And here you see it with David, you can see how it played out and how David did become the king. Ultimately, it went through all kinds of intrigue. It went through all kinds of challenge and difficulty. And at times, David stands up and is just fantastic. And at other times, you kind of scratch your head and go, David, what are you thinking? But ultimately, the reason David became king was because God had promised that he would. And so he became king. God bound himself to David in covenant obligation and brought it about. And in wonderful grace, God in our baptisms binds himself to you and me. And says, I'm going to be faithful to you. I will take care of you. I will call you my child as long as you live because I love you that dearly. Which I just think is a really, really cool thought that, uh, that a person could carry out from this text. Just pull it, building on that, Tom, I mean, what you said, um, it lines up pretty well with the explanation of the theme of the day and the worship plan, which, which the guys have read. Um, here's a quote. It says, to the world, the believer does not look more blessed than the unbeliever. In fact, the believer may appear to have more hardships as the devil and his allies attempt to destroy him. So to assure his children, God connects his grace, his power, his blessing, his promise to something we can see, a visible sign, the anointing of baptism. I knew there was a sermon in there somewhere. There it is. <laughs> we put it together. I got, yeah, that, I got. that says it super, super well. It really does. And to, uh, to, to make our determinations, not on the outward appearances. You know, another little Hebrew thought from this text is that when God comes to, to Samuel, he doesn't say to Samuel, I have picked out one of Jesse's sons. The Hebrew is more literally, I have seen one of Jesse's sons. I have seen him as king for me. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about that is that as you get deeper into that text, that whole thought of seeing 
uh, just comes out over and over again. What's the first thing Samuel does? He looks at Eliam and he just sees him. And he just sees the size of him. And oh man, he's big and tall. This He's got to be the Lord's anointed. This has got to be the guy. No, no, no. God looks at something <laughs> totally different. And that whole thought of seeing becomes, um, it, it sort of fills up the rest of of, uh, of, of the text and to, to realize that um, God doesn't rule the world in such a way that his ways can always be seen clearly to our naked eyes. In fact, so often they're hidden it does, and that we simply then trust that what God tells us is the truth. That's where baptism can become again so, so cool for us to go back and say, I'm a baptized child of God. God put his name on me. That's the truth. And no matter what's going on around me, I know that I'm a child of God because God has promised that, sealed it to me in my baptism. Just cool. Good stuff. Amen. Yeah. John or, John or Tim, just you guys, I know a question a lot of guys listening to this are going to ask is, is they're thinking through the various parts of the sermon, whether it's the malady or a specific gospel, uh, um, you know, the gospel in the words of this specific text. You guys have any thoughts on, on uh, for example, what, what in this text would, 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 uh, possibly a preacher say that would call someone to repentance or what in this text would, would help someone see the beauty of their savior, Jesus thoughts on that. You want me to take a swing, Jonathan? Come on. Well, <laughs> the, the David, like if you go the David route, which we've been talking a lot about the, the malady is pretty obvious like that. You despise yourself. You can despise yourself and look down on yourself and, and not see that God has raised you up. Um, I want to pitch another idea, though. There's a lot of characters, and it's interesting to, to walk in their shoes a little bit. But what about Samuel? What about Samuel? He's 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 carrying all the action forward in this text. In, in fact, he's the whole reason why this text kind of exists. And if you look at it from his perspective, um, he's a total disaster here. He, from the very beginning, um, he the Lord comes to him and he his grief has gone on too long. He's he's got like what I would call unbounded grief, unlimited grief. And that's nothing less than despair because it hasn't been li limited metaphorically, emotionally, spiritually for him. And he hasn't carried out his vocation as the anointer. And and that um, frankly, it would be, I think Emily Dickinson, I, I found a poem by her. And she said this, that despair, which we're, you know, I'm talking about his unlimited grief, is she, she compared it this way. She said, it's contented as the eye upon the forehead of a bust. So what, what she's saying is that um, not all contentment is godly. And when you get contented with sin and with disaster and you, and you actually become hopeless, that's almost kind of the worst sin of all. And you no longer look forward to the messianic reign and, and the messianic anointing. And then if you carry that forward then, and, and you arrive at verse six, again, um, Samuel goes to the other extreme. Like he has no hope in an anointed Messiah. And then he gets too optimistic. And you, he has what I, you might call unbridled optimism, which isn't messianic hope either. So it's unbounded. 
it's like, oh, here it is. It's in the first solution that comes along, which is what um, ambulance chasers, Jehovah Witnesses, and politicians rely on that people are gullible, that, that people will go for the first Messiah to come along and they don't wait to see like, is there a messianic hope for us? And then as you move through the text, then the great gospel message is there he is. Heaven opens, the spirit comes down, like Jesus has come into the world. And, and that's a life-changing thing, I think for Samuel, because he, this, I mean, this, with this pericope, he rides off into the sunset. He shows up briefly a little bit more in the book, but this is pretty much it for him. And he goes out with this great messianic hope in his heart. So that would be some law gospel stuff too. Go ahead, John. Well, let me, I want to, I just want to build on some of these ideas. I, I, I'm really drawn to, the, to Samuel here as a character because I think he helps us get at some really key issues. And uh, one is you do have this idea of inappropriate grieving. God does come to him and, and, and he doesn't say why you're grieving. He says, how long are you grieving? So grieving um, is not inappropriate in and of itself, but Samuel's grieving was, and, and um, the professor, uh, Professor Cuck talked about that a little bit, but it, when, when you grieve inappropriate, you end up doing inappropriate things. And this is where you can kind of get into some law things. I, there is a textual issue here. There's a textual question here that we haven't mentioned yet. And that's that um, is in verse, is verse two um, and verse three a cover story or is it actually the Lord's um, instructions? And, you know, I, I, I guess I don't have a firm position on that, but it, it, it seems to me, and we're not doing exegesis right now, but it seems to me that what's happened is that the Lord told Samuel to go and anoint a, a new king, and I'm going to tell you who it is. Um, and then what happens is he, he jumps in on the Lord, like he, he cuts in on the Lord. And I think that's why you don't have the same prophetic formula as you have in, in verse one. And, and so it's not a cover story. The Lord is just calmly continuing giving him instructions. Um, if that's right, either way, it doesn't matter. Late, later on, you have Samuel um, explicitly missing. He, 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 the Lord given him instruction. I'm going to tell you who the king is. I'm going to tell you who the, who, who the Messiah is. And, and Samuel doesn't wait for the Lord's word. He just decides on his own. And it's an amazing, I mean, Hebrew narrative never has psychological in, introspection, but um, it's just very, very rare. It's very, very unique in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, but here we get this, this psychological insight into um, Samuel's self-talk, and we should pay attention to that. Like he, the Lord had told him, I'm going to tell you, and he did not wait for like, Yahweh's word. He just decided on, a, on his own who, who the Messiah is. This is very problematic. And you think about Samuel's life, for example, like we sing hymns about this, right? Speak, O Lord. Like this is Samuel. So like, Lord, your servant is listening. Like, come on. Like, this is Samuel. What happened to Samuel? Samuel is a totally different, different character here. He's not waiting for the Lord to speak. So you have this, you have inappropriate grieving. And I think there's a lot there. Like, us Christians um, who experience this world can become so world weary, so tired 
that our tiredness very quickly on a razor's edge, we go from being tired to despairing. Um, we, we go from being um, beat up to being defeated. Um, and this is, this is Samuel. Like Samuel won't even leave Ram anymore. He won't even go. He won't do it. He doesn't, how can I go, Lord? I can't go. Saul's going to kill me. Um, which I, I don't know where the death threat comes from. Where does that come from? He, you know, this is, he's very anxious. Um, and so this is, uh, we do this to ourselves. And uh, for us to just calmly stop and listen to Yahweh's word um, is important. So there's inappropriate grieving. And then the second thing, um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of building on what Timothy talked about, is this idea of um, looking to the wrong Messiah. I think there's a tremendous opportunity here, just a tremendous opportunity to help people understand who Yahweh's Messiah actually is, who is the Lord's Messiah. Because the world has its ideas about what a Messiah is. We have ideas about what the Messiah is. But then you have verse 7, Yahweh, the Lord, has his ideas about what his Messiah is. And we're going to find him according to his word. We're going to find him according to, to, to the anointing. And now we're, you know, now we're into those, um, those, those big ideas. So you have, you have this chance, this tremendous chance to help people not fall into the trap of, of believing or tending towards um, a false Messiah in their life, but rather um, waiting for, you know, waiting for the Messiah that's really, un, really covered. You know, he's, He's the eighth one. He's um, the runt. He's the Cinderella off on the side. Um, and then I got, I, I don't know if anybody wants to get in on that, but I got a whole bunch of gospel hooks to, to add on. Well, just to, to build on what you said, John, I mean, with, with the theme being anointing uncovered, what the eye sees different from what God decrees. When you talk about inappropriate grieving, I think that then like an application for people, when, when people tend to fall apart, it, 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 it's Typically, they focus on outward circumstances of life. And when it comes to a believer, it's often they're, they're connecting that, like health, um, material possessions, how my kids are doing. They connect that with, like, God's favor. And, and what this text drives home is, no, you have to look at what God says is the way he indicates his favor, which is with this anointing um, in, in baptism. And then when you talk about, like, like Messiah's, just the things that people look to, like, I think a parallel in this text is just as um, David didn't look like a king next to um, Saul. Put that in, in, in contrast to the gospel lesson. I bet you to the Israelite people, John the Baptist probably looked kind of like a charismatic, powerful figure, um, certainly moral, upright. People were coming to him in droves, and you could see if people would say, well, that's the Messiah. And, and no, it's this guy who just is this, this carpenter's son who is completely uh, um, unimpressive visually, and yet the anointing and the proclamation of God's favor indicates what, what reality is. Let's go back, Jonathan, to you. To your, you said you had some, some uh, gospel ideas? Yeah, and, you know, pile, pile on. I, I, I just, I think there's a lot of cool stuff here, like the, the David who tends sheep. Like, oh, man. You can do a lot with that. Jesus the shepherd, Jesus the lamb, Jesus who who gets himself tangled up in our briars and our brambles. You know, this is this is beautiful. And, and the Psalms pick this up too, like Psalm 78, like um, Timothy mentioned how Psalms uh, uh, Psalm 78 was in my devotion this morning. Just it it and it and it climaxes at David the skilled, the skilled shepherd. 
Um, and this is Jesus, you know, this is, this is our great hope. This is our great Messiah. So I think that's one way that you can get at it. And I, I, I think there's um, a couple others. Um, one is um, the law of primogeniture, you know, where you have the Lord choosing the youngest and, you know, the seemingly cast off that, you know, we, we've been using some of this language. I, the, the, the raising up the lowly. I, I think there's some gospel hooks the, and I'll, I'll be quick because then you guys can pile on with other stuff. But um, the, the last one is just drawing the parallels between this anointing and then the anointing in, in the Jordan River. Like one thing that's really cool about First uh, Samuel here is Yahweh is so emphatic. Like you, you cannot mistake the fact that this is the Lord's choice. This is him. And he's, he's got a major prophet who's anointing, a major prophet who's anointing David. And then you have the spirit rushing on this man. Um, and it, and it's, it's powerful language. And, but it, it, the, you get momentum with that and, and you start seeing like Jesus anointing is even greater, is even a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Um, even he, he, the Lord is even more emphatic, like he preaches himself from the sky, you know. Um, the spirit rushes um, bodily, you know, in, in, the shape, in, in the form of a dove. I mean, so it's powerful marking of, 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 of the true Messiah. Tom. If you want to follow along on the, uh, the Samuel idea, um, one of the, the cool gospel thoughts of this text, in my opinion, is the patience of God. Um, God gave Samuel that time for grieving. Um, Samuel apparently needed some of that time. Um, did it be, did it get to the point of being sinful? Yeah. God does seem to upbraid Samuel a little bit here. And yet God was incredibly patient with him and let him do it. When day, when Samuel gets there to Bethlehem and, um, Eliab comes in front, oh yeah, this has got to be the Lord's anointed. And God kind of patiently says, no, 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 I've, I've rejected that one. That's not the one. And then Samuel seems to, uh, after that, the text seems to indicate that Samuel is listening to God and does seem to be communicating to Jesse, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. This isn't, isn't God's choice. Um, so the wonderful patience of God in sticking with his people and building them up so that ultimately they, they can serve him in the ways in which he needs them to serve. It's a cool gospel thought. Would, would, would you guys say that this is legitimate? Like I'm thinking of, um, as far as gospel proclamation, keying in on the concept of anointing of God's um, choice. Um, it, it's interesting that, so in, 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 you know, God chooses David uh, opposed to the others, which you might think would be, would be the right way to go with the others. Um, here God chooses Jesus uh, in the gospel lesson, even says he's well pleased with him. Yeah, really, really what he's choosing him to do is die. As opposed to my anointing, he's saying, I'm choosing you. And there's no reason to do it. There's no reason to say with him, I'm well pleased. Um, and yet he's choosing me, anointing me to live. I think the, the contrast between Jesus being anointed to die and us being anointed to live um, do you think that, am I, am I stretching or do you think that's legit? Yeah, I, I, 
I can see that it's obviously um, more taken from the, the, the rest of scripture and, and the truths about baptism, but I would, I would be very happy with an application like that. And very cool one. Yeah. What, like one of the dynamics that you just kind of reminded me of this, John, is that there's a really interesting interplay in Samuel's life of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And in some ways, Samuel has all of those things going on in his life. And he's, he's really handing the baton off here to David. And it's really focused in on his kingship, obviously. And, and David doesn't, he's not really yet the complete package. But Jesus is, like you say, like he is, he's prophet, priest, and king. We might say David was, was prophet um, and king. But then here we get he here we get priest Jesus, who's the whole he's the whole shebang, and it's no wonder then that God uh, rips open heaven at, at Jesus' baptism. And I keep thinking like if Samuel must have, we're not told how Samuel felt about the whole thing, but I I just have in my heart that he went home a different guy, and like he he did the anointing. And he's so encouraged. He's so hopeful. He's almost like Simeon. Now I can die in peace. <laughs> and if that did that for Samuel, if David did that for Samuel, what does Jesus do for us? And here we are, um, you know, whoever's listening to this is probably listening to this at the beginning of a brand new year. Can we, can messianic hope rise that, that God can come and intervene in the way that he needs to for us in our sin in, in our death and whatever, whatever need we may have. That's a great uh, kind of transition, Tim, because you talked about Samuel going home. So let's, as we kind of get near the end of this podcast, maybe kind of end there. Um, I've just found that with, with <laughs> I do a lot of work with congregations and in, in, when in survey work about people's, you know, in how they view the sermons, they, they want to have something that they can, that they can take home that kind of affects them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So, you talked about what Samuel would take home when you when what are you hoping your your uh, your people that you preach to when they go home on Sunday? How, how does this text make a difference for them on Monday? For me, for me, it's just that they they have Jesus rooted more deeply in their hearts than maybe ever before. That that they see God part the heavens. That they see Jesus. Um, have the water poured over him and Jesus becoming our substitute, uh, our prophet, priest, and king. And like I always talk about him as uh, fireworks, like these divine, incredible fireworks surrounding Jesus' baptism. And if, if people can be more rooted in Christ and, and rooted in that anointed baptized Messiah and we can uncover him, like we've been talking about, we want to uncover him then um, they're going to be more hopeful in their vocations every day. Like I, I keep thinking about Samuel here and, and how discouraged he was in his vocation. Could this mean that dads, instead of just saying like, well, last year I was pretty crappy at, at, at can I say that on a wilds podcast um, at being a devotional leader for my family? Like, no, this year I'm going to try. I'm going to try again. I'm going to go to NPH and pick up a devotional book and I want them to know more about Jesus. And just those places in our life where we've been 
you know, maybe we haven't even noticed it, our despair and our vocations. And maybe it's for pastors too. Like maybe you're discouraged and you're just like, I don't, you kind of like Sam, you know, stuck in Rama that you would get up again and realize that when you show up in Bethlehem, people are going to tremble at the word of God. You know, um, those are some of the things that I've been thinking about. Jonathan, what about you? When I think about takeaways, I always distinguish between, am I, am I looking for an attitude or, or some kind of faith tell us or, or a behavior or an activity that I want to point people toward? And on, on the baptism of our Lord, and with this text, I, I'm, I'm drawn to the faith aspect of it. And in this particular way, um, Professor Brug wrote an article in the quarterly I can't remember when somebody Google it, but it was, he, he wrote is, is the Christian an optimist? And, you know, as you head into a new year, you know, hopefully people are listening to this like 2022, um, you head into a new year, you can, you can have this unbounded optimism, like this is it, I've, I'm conquering the world, this is my year, a lie of all the way, you know, like that kind of thing. Or you can be like, I'm just going to repeat 2021, like all that stuff. And it's neither one is messianic and hope. What we want is we want to be right in the middle with Jesus. We want to be people who um, we're not, we, we understand that this is a broken world. It's not going to get fixed until Jesus comes back. And yet we can still strive in our vocations. Um, because we know that when we're, we are reign, we are under the reign of Christ. He has come, um, and he's made that clear in his baptism. Um, but then at the same time, um, we, don't, we don't have to latch on to the, the next fad, the next leader, the next whatever. We can hold on to Christ, and we can just stay even, you know, every day for him. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. That's that's what I really want for my people is just that even, steady um, life of repentance heading into a new year. Tom? Yeah, and I, I would probably lean towards focusing in on uh, the issue of anointing and what that symbolized and how it was the God binding himself to David and saying, I am going to be faithful to you. And just as God was faithful to David, God is going to be faithful to you and me in 2022 as well. And wow, what an encouragement that is to walk into the new year, no matter what looks like is coming or what has laid in the past, to ultimately know that the God of the universe is going to be faithful to me, is going to keep forgiving me, is going to keep loving me, is going to keep walking me towards my eternal home. And I have proof of it because I was baptized. Um, that's going to impact me in every aspect of my life. Yeah, if I tie those together, I, I, you know, I forget who said it, but um, God never anoints someone to a position without giving them the ability to do it. He always gives us the strength to do what he asks us to do. So whether it's like what Tim said, which is like sanctified behavior in your vocations, like, for example, family devotions, the dad who says, I, I can't do that. I don't have the skills to do that. No, you, you're anointed by God. He's going to give you the skill to do that. Or, or what, what Jonathan said about living this, this, this steady life of repentance. Well, repentance is God's work in me. So he's going to give me the ability to do that um, by virtue of the anointing. So, which goes back to what, what Tom said about um, just him being faithful to us. 
Well, thank you, brothers. You have any final final thoughts? Yeah, fun preaching on the baptism of the Lord. Yeah. It's a great Sunday to preach. Just get it out there. Come on. Well, thank you guys very much for your time. I look forward to seeing you uh, next week, and we'll be discussing Ephesians chapter three. Bye now.